You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 232, Jones and the Armada. This week, we return to the Continental Navy and Captain John Paul Jones. We last left Jones's story in episode 180. In 1778, Jones had raided the British coast, captured numerous merchant ships as prizes, and eventually returned to France, where he lost his ship and was stuck on land for nearly a year. The French celebrated Jones for his earlier exploits against the British. At the same time, they seemed in no hurry to give him a new ship to continue those exploits. Jones spent his time meeting with French officials as well as the American commissioners in Paris. He still hoped to get command of L'Indian, a ship that was built in the Netherlands for the American commissioners. Now, this was the ship that Jones had been promised back in 1777. The British had gotten word of that project and protested a ship being built by an ally for their enemy. So, in the end, the French Navy had to purchase the ship. At the time, Britain and France were still at peace, and Britain could not object to that purchase. French officials dangled Lindian to the Americans, suggesting possibly making Jones its captain, but it never happened. The French were building up their own navy and did not want to give away such a valuable ship of the line to an American. Jones also continued to feel the effects of his disputes with Lieutenant Thomas Simpson, with whom he had argued constantly on the prior voyage. In France, Jones had Simpson thrown in prison for disobeying orders while at sea. John Adams had taken Simpson's side in the matter and against Jones, believing that Jones was just trying to take all the credit for the voyage and slandering the good name of this New England officer whose family was related to that of Adams. After a few months, Jones, under pressure, agreed to drop the charges against Simpson and allow him to captain the Ranger on its return to America. Franklin and other French officials hinted that he needed to do this before he could get another command. After Simpson sailed for America aboard the Ranger, Jones remained without a ship. Instead, he spent time with Lafayette, who had returned to France, as the two men schemed to put together a substantial invasion of about 1,500 men against England. French officials put the kibosh on those plans as they were planning a much larger invasion. They transferred Lafayette to a command on the other side of France, where he could not be as much trouble. Jones also met with the French admiral, the Comte d'Orville who had fought the Battle of Ushant against British Admiral Keppel in 1778. See episode 194. Now, Jones suggested that he be given a ship or small fleet. With that, he could destroy a coal fleet at Newcastle in order to cause a fuel shortage in London. 
He could destroy a fishing fleet in Greenland in order to cause a food shortage, or perhaps just more disruption of trade by picking off some of the longer-distance trade ships. While Jones's ideas intrigued Admiral de Orville, Jones simply could not get a ship. Instead, Jones spent the summer of 1779 trying to get anything so he could get back to sea, but was continually frustrated. One of the prize ships that he had captured, the Drake, was plundered and sold for a pittance, which meant not only did he lose the ship, it meant his crew was out of their much-hoped-for prize money. He did almost get a small fleet to take into the Irish Sea. He worked out his plans with Edward Bancroft, who was Benjamin Franklin's secretary. In the end, the plans fell through when, once again, he was not given the ships that he was promised. In this case, it was probably a good thing, though, since Bancroft was a British spy and had forwarded Jones's plans to London. Had he set sail, he probably would have sailed right into a British trap. Jones was never aware of any of that. He just continued to express frustration at his inability to get a new ship. Finally, in September of 1779, Jones received a new ship. Well, new to him. The Duc de Dora was a 13-year-old merchant vessel that had made several trips to China before being converted to more local trade. The French Navy had purchased the ship in February of 1779 and assisted the Americans with outfitting it as a naval vessel. They added 44 guns, which was a fairly impressive number, although all but six of those were 12-pounders or less. The larger guns were critical to sinking an enemy ship. It was an impressive armament to capture a merchantman, but not one for taking on a British ship of the line. It was also not a particularly fast ship, and not one that the French really wanted to use, so they were happy to make it available to the Americans. Because the ship had been built as a long-distance merchant ship, it did have a large and luxurious captain's quarters. This appealed to Jones, who liked to present himself as a gentleman of substance. He even had a set of plates bearing his family crest made for himself so that he could entertain guests aboard ship in style. That said, though, he was wary of the ship. Early test voyages proved that it was very slow. That didn't matter as much for a merchant ship in peacetime, but it mattered very much for a military ship that needed to chase down targets and escape from pursuing Navy vessels. Jones, of course, had been lobbying to get his ship for months. At this point, he would take anything he could get. He decided to rename the ship the Bonhomme Richard in honor of Benjamin Franklin, whose book Poor Richard's Almanac sold in France under the name Le Maximes du Bonhomme Richard. The Bonhomme Richard was ready to sail in the fall, and along with it, Jones received a fleet to sail with the Bonhomme Richard. It included the 36-gun Alliance, the 32-gun Palace, the 18-gun Surf, and the 12-gun Vengeance. Commanding the Alliance was the fleet's second-in-command, Captain Pierre Landais. He was a French officer of 30 years. Landais had been wounded in action in the Seven Years' War and had spent time as a British prisoner. He had also accompanied Captain Louis-Anton, the Comte de Bougainville, on a voyage around the world after the Seven Years' War. By 1775, though, 
Landay was discharged from service for his reputation as an incompetent officer. Two years later, he was one of many down-on-their-luck officers who went to Silas Dean looking for work. In 1777, Dean gave Landay a captain's commission and command of the newly converted merchant ship, the Alliance, full of covert French military aid that was being sent to the Continental Army in America. So, why did Dean give a disgraced, terminated officer a commission? Well, the American commissioners did not exactly do any due diligence in checking the backgrounds of their officer applicants. Landay appeared to have been able to present himself pretty well, and he did have decades of experience. Landay, however, would prove to have a rather poor record with the Continental Navy. As one historian put it, quote, If he was not one of the worst frigate captains, it was only because, with a few notable exceptions, so many of them were incompetent. During Landay's first voyage from France to America as a Continental officer, he had to put down a mutiny on his own ship. But he managed to arrive in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with his cargo intact. The captain met with top officials in America and received praise from Samuel Adams, among others. Based on his successful mission and his very high view of himself, Congress, after interviewing him, affirmed his captaincy and his command of the Alliance. He also became a citizen of Massachusetts during his visit. In January of 1779, he was given the honor of returning the Marquis de Lafayette to France. During the return voyage, he had to put down another mutiny, but managed to complete his voyage successfully once again. Landay was supposed to bring the alliance back to America once again, this time returning with John Adams. Benjamin Franklin, however, countermanded those orders and assigned Landay to the squadron under Captain Jones to sail to the North Sea and harass British shipping. Now, Jones and Landay did not seem to get along, despite efforts to spend some bonding time together before the voyage. During a shakedown cruise, the Bonhomme Richard crashed into the Alliance, causing some minor damage to both ships. At the time, Jones was asleep in his cabin. Landay was on duty, but rather than attempt to avoid the collision, he ran down to his cabin to grab his pistols. He later said that he thought the crew of the other ship had mutinied and was deliberately trying to ram him. Captain Jones dismissed Lieutenant Robert Robinson, who had the command on the Bonhomme Richard during the collision. But he also began to doubt Landay's abilities as a captain. The crew of Jones's fleet was pretty problematic. Most of them were European sailors who mostly wanted rum and money and cared about little else. A fair percentage of the crew were English sailors who had been taken from French prisons. Landay's fear of mutiny was not without cause. Many of the men would have happily overthrown their officers and sailed for England if given the chance. Jones had to resort to repeated lashings to keep control of his crew. He broke a mutiny plot among the English sailors and sentenced the ringleader to 250 lashes. On another occasion, he had the crew take him ashore to conduct some business, and while he was away, the crew abandoned their boat and went off to get drunk. Jones had to find a local fisherman to get back to his ship. When the rest of his crew returned with the launch, he sentenced each of the men to 12 lashes. 
Now, Captain Jones did have a few good men among his crew. After he fired Lieutenant Robinson for crashing into the Alliance, Jones appointed Lieutenant Richard Dale as his new second-in-command. The 22-year-old Virginian had seen his share of difficulties before his assignment aboard the Bonhomme Richard. Dale had gone to sea in 1769 at the age of 12. His father, a merchant and shipwright from Norfolk, Virginia, had died two years earlier, and the boy needed to support himself. His uncle gave him his first position aboard ship. From there, Dale traveled to Liverpool in England, where he learned the trade of a seaman. After five years as an apprentice, the 17-year-old Dale was serving as chief mate on a colonial merchant vessel. In 1776, Dale joined the Virginia Navy, but was captured almost immediately by a British ship, the Liverpool. At that time, still fighting under Lord Dunmore, which was trying to take back royal control of Virginia. Dale knew many of the men who were serving aboard the Liverpool, and they persuaded him to sign on with the British crew. A short time later, Dale was wounded while fighting for the British, as they tried to capture several smaller American ships. While traveling to Jamaica, an American ship, the Lexington, under the command of Captain John Barry, managed to capture the British ship on which Dale was serving. Dale happily accepted an offer to switch sides once again and took a position as a midshipman in the Continental Navy. He remained aboard the Lexington after Captain Barry transferred to a larger ship. Once again, though, the fates were against Dale. The British ship Pearl captured the Lexington, and Dale was once again taken aboard as a prisoner. Although a storm soon allowed the Lexington to escape, Dale remained a prisoner aboard the Pearl. A prisoner exchange returned Dale to the Lexington. It was only January of 1777, and he had already been a prisoner of war twice. The Lexington then sailed for France, where it joined a small fleet under the command of Lambert Wicks, who was raiding the Irish coast, a raid that I discussed back in episode 137. The raiders took many merchant ships and successfully returned them to France. There, however, British diplomats forced France, which was at the time still at peace with Britain, to expel the American ships from its ports. The Lexington attempted a return voyage to America, but was captured at sea in September of 1777. This time, Dale, along with the rest of the crew, were sent to Mill Prison in Plymouth, England. There were crews of a number of ships being held there under horrific conditions. Charged with treason, the men were often held in irons and almost never fed. Malnutrition threatened their lives. At one point, the prisoners killed and ate a dog. Other desperate meals included cats, rats, and grass. Some of the locals even took pity on them and raised funds to provide a bit of food, disgusted that the British government was simply allowing the prisoners to starve to death. The prisoners managed to dig a tunnel under the prison wall, allowing several dozen men to escape. I mentioned this incident once before, as one of the successful escapees was Gustavus Cunningham, another Continental Naval captain. Dale managed to get away from the prison during this escape, but he was arrested as he attempted to board a ship in London that was headed for France. He was returned to Mill Prison, where he spent 40 days in the black hole as punishment. After about a year in prison, 
Dale managed to obtain the uniform of a British officer and simply walked out the front gate of the prison. This time, he managed to get aboard a ship and made his way to France in February of 1779. This was about the time that John Paul Jones had received word that he would get command of the Bonhomme Richard. And desperate for crew members, Jones happily signed on Dale as an officer. Now, the reason the French government provided Jones not only with a ship, but a whole fleet at this time, was that it was part of a larger plan by French officials. France and Spain's combined fleet, along with the British Navy's distraction in America, provided the best opportunity for an invasion of Britain in centuries. The plan was for the French fleet to sail down to Spain and combine with the Spanish fleet. The combined fleet would sail into the English Channel and defeat the smaller British fleet. Once in control of the Channel, troop transports would carry about 40,000 soldiers from France to the coast of Britain. They would force a land battle with the British Army and capture London. The numbers seemed to favor the would-be invaders. France had 30 ships of the line to combine with 36 Spanish ships of the line, along with many more smaller ships. The British had less than 40 ships of the line to defend the island, commanded by Admiral Charles Hardy, who had not seen a sea command in 20 years. The rest of the officers and ships were away defending other parts of the empire. The British Army only had about 20,000 soldiers in Britain. It could supplement these with local militia, but the English militia had even less training and experience than colonial militia. The English militia had not seen combat in many generations. If the French and Spanish could clear the channel with their larger fleet and then land a larger army in England, they had a real chance of repeating William the Conqueror's success of 1066. Britain was completely unprepared for such an invasion. Coastal defenses had already proven ill-equipped to handle small coastal raids, let alone a full invasion. Fortunately for the unprepared British, the invasion fleet ran into problems from the outset. In an attempt to throw off British spies in France, the French fleet, under the command of Admiral de Orville, left Brest quickly without taking on rations for an extended tour. The fleet set sail on June 3, 1779, to meet up with the Spanish off the northwest coast of Spain. There, they awaited the arrival of the Spanish Armada. They waited, and waited, and waited. June turned into July, with no Spanish fleet in sight. French sailors and marines suffered through terrible heat below decks during the Spanish summer. Without proper rations, the man began to show signs of scurvy. On top of that, smallpox and typhus spread through the fleet. Finally, after about six weeks of waiting, the Spanish fleet, under the command of Don Luis de Cordoba, arrived. By this time, it was late July. It was not until mid-August that the combined fleet could get underway and reach the English Channel. The fleet made it to the British coast with no opposition. They encountered only one British naval vessel, the Ardent, which was sailing to join the British fleet. The captain had mistaken the British and Spanish Armada for the British fleet, sailed toward it, and was promptly captured. The sight of the enemy fleet off the coast of Plymouth 
set off alarms all over Britain. But the Armada was not the invasion force. The Armada was looking for the British Navy in order to clear the way for the invasion force. The British had received word that the French and Spanish had sailed out into the Atlantic and had sailed after them, thus leaving the open path in the English Channel. But until the Allied French and Spanish defeated the British Navy, they could not launch their invasion fleet of troop transports. Otherwise, the British Navy could show up at the wrong time and destroy all the troop transports. So the French and Spanish continued to sail around the Channel looking for the enemy. Then a storm blew the Armada out into the Atlantic. At the same time, the British fleet used foggy conditions to sail back to Plymouth, where the smaller fleet could be supported by many smaller ships and coastal defenses. Meanwhile, all these many weeks of delay meant that thousands of French and Spanish soldiers and marines were dying. Typhus and smallpox in the French fleet had spread to the Spanish ships as well. Hundreds of men were dying every single day. Further, it was already September, meaning a land campaign in Britain, even if launched successfully, would probably be fought into the winter, which French and Spanish leaders thought would put them at a great disadvantage. In the end, the Allied fleet simply returned to Brest and gave up without a fight. The Armada had not fired a single cannon shot in battle, but had lost over 8,000 men to disease. Admiral d'Orville resigned his command shortly after returning in failure. The British, now on high alert, began improving their coastal defenses all over Britain. It was in this context of this planned invasion that John Paul Jones embarked on the raid that led to one of the most famous naval battles in American history. And we'll get to that next week when the Bonhomme Richard takes on the British ship, the Serapis. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thank you to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. I also welcome a new Robert Morris Circle supporter this month. He asks to remain anonymous, but asked if I'd give a shout-out to Liberty & Co. I don't think he has any affiliation with Liberty & Co., but like me, just thinks they have great products. My new Robert Morris Circle supporter is one of quite a few of you who've stepped up after I issued a challenge to my listeners a couple of weeks ago. 
I'm getting to the point where continuing to produce an episode every week, along with the work required for my day job, is just becoming unsustainable. I would really hate to begin missing weekly releases, but that may become a reality soon. However, I challenged all of you that if I could get 300 people to make a pledge of support on Patreon, I would quit my day job and devote myself full-time to the podcast, meaning even more content. At present, I have 133 supporters on Patreon, so almost halfway to my goal. I know it can be a lot asking to contribute money to something you already can have for free, but it really is the best way that independent podcasts on a topic like this, which is not exactly mainstream, can make it. If you enjoy the show, I really hope you will consider making a pledge. My thanks to Jamie Brown, Sandra McNamara, Julian Isidore, and Tyler Brinson, who joined as Privy Council members last month, and also to Mimi Wood, who upgraded from Standard Bearer to Privy Council. I chose the name Privy Council for supporters who give $20 or more a month because it was the name of the King's top advisors on matters of policy. Privy Council members can reach out to me at any time with any questions or suggestions for the podcast. Also, of course, they get a monthly magnet each month, as do all Patreon supporters at the $10 level or higher. On that point, my apologies once again that I am late getting out the December flags. This relates back to my earlier comments about being overwhelmed by all the tasks required for this podcast. I do intend to send out both the December and January magnets in a week or so. I really don't want this to become a regular habit. I really want to get those magnets out to my supporters every single month. But I beg your understanding that I really am having trouble finding time each week to accomplish all of my tasks. And my top priority is getting out each week's episode on time. Please know that I'm not taking your support for granted, and I will try to do better on this. This week, I introduced Richard Dale, who would gain fame as John Paul Jones's first officer. Dale will go on to have an interesting naval career, which I hope to cover in future episodes. After the war, he was one of the early American merchants to develop a trade between the U.S. and China. He also became one of the six first naval captains in the U.S. Navy. He was the first naval commander to take a U.S. Navy ship to sea during the quasi-war with France in the 1790s. Dale also participated in the action against Tripoli pirates during the Jefferson administration. When the Marine hymn sings about the shores of Tripoli, that is the action that they are talking about. The other big issue I touched on this week was the French and Spanish Armada that had planned to invade Britain. This event really doesn't get much attention because, well, the invasion never happened. But if it had, it had a good chance of succeeding and really could have changed the course of history. The main reason it did not happen was because disease, primarily smallpox, wiped out most of the crew before they could get to battle. We often forget that far more soldiers and sailors die from disease than had died in battle. Diseases really changed the course of the war several times, and this is definitely one of those times. For my book recommendation this week, I've already recommended a biography of John Paul Jones, so this week I want to recommend a more general book called Rebels Under Sail, The American Navy During the Revolution by William M. Fowler, Jr., The book has a good overview of all naval actions by the Continental Navy during the Revolutionary War. It's an older book, 
first published in time for the Bicentennial in 1976. The author, William Fowler, has been a history professor and was for many years the director of the Massachusetts Historical Society. He has written a number of good books on the Revolutionary War era, including several dealing with naval matters. As always, I've included a link to Amazon if you want to buy the book Rebels Under Sail. There are plenty of inexpensive used copies available. I've also included a link to the book on archive.org where you can read it online for free. Now, People sometimes ask me why I link to Amazon rather than an independent bookstore or something like bookshop.org, which actually offers larger referral commissions. The reason really is one of convenience. Amazon is almost always going to have any book in stock, especially older used items that are out of print. Many older out-of-print books are hard to find consistently from other sources. I've been trying to build a storefront of book recommendations on bookshop.org, but many of the older books simply aren't available there. If you're willing to search, you can probably find most of these books available elsewhere, but Amazon, for better or worse, is an easy default source. My online recommendation is an older biography called The Life of John Paul Jones by John Abbott. Now, this was first published in 1898, meaning it's in the public domain. It gives good coverage to Jones's efforts during the Revolutionary War and also covers his post-war commissions as well. As always, you can find the book online at archive.org or use the direct links available on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Now, my question this week is another alternative history question. It asks... What if Benedict Arnold successfully surrendered West Point to the British during the American Revolutionary War? Well, Benedict Arnold had planned to surrender West Point, along with the Continental Army defending it, as part of his deal with the British to switch sides. Fortunately for the Americans, they discovered his plot and Arnold had to flee to British lines before he could turn over the area. And I'll cover all that in a future episode. The loss of West Point and the Army would have been a terrible loss. However, the Continentals had suffered terrible losses before, for example, Fort Washington, and would suffer another terrible loss at Charleston, South Carolina. Yet they managed to keep going. I suspect that would have been the case with West Point as well. The British had been obsessed with the idea of establishing a connection between Quebec and New York in an attempt to cut off New England from the rest of the colonies. They thought New England was the heart of the problem and that cutting them off would isolate the rebels and allow them to be destroyed. But by the time Arnold was prepared to surrender West Point in 1780, that theory had proven false. There was plenty of support for independence and the Continental Army all over the colonies, or states as they were at this point. In fact, the war had largely left New England in 1776 and was being fought in the other colonies for most of the war. In addition, even if the British had succeeded in establishing a line between Quebec and New York, it wouldn't have accomplished anything. We're talking about hundreds of miles of wilderness. So, even if the British had established a whole line of forts, smugglers could have easily moved back and forth. The strategy of isolating New England was a pipe dream invented in London and which had proven impossible with the British loss at Saratoga. A British-held West Point simply would have provided an attractive inland target for the Americans. 
the British probably would have had to abandon it or end up having it recaptured the same way they abandoned Fort Ticonderoga after they captured it in 1777. West Point was designed to control traffic on the Hudson River, but was vulnerable to land attack by a large army. The reality that the British did not want to face was that military victories were not going to win this war. America was simply too large. The British could take and hold outposts, but it would not give them control of the surrounding area. Like their capture of Philadelphia, taking a valuable target just made them a valuable target themselves when they remained there. So, if Arnold had successfully surrendered West Point, it would have been a setback. But I don't think it would have changed the course of the war. If you have questions for me, please reach out to me on email or social media, and I'll try to answer your question. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.